reading to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth, in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. That brings our chapter to a close. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So, as you might imagine, in a passage like this, we have a lot of controversy over how it has been interpreted over the centuries. I don't want to enter into those controversies because we're, we don't have the time for that. I, I simply want to be very straightforward and tell you what is going on here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 from an historic reformed point of view. This, um, this interpretation of the passage that I'm about to lay out before you has perhaps a few 
minor points that are my own originally. But beyond that, uh, in the main, it is what we have been hearing about this passage since the days of the Reformation. Okay? So uh, it may be new to some of your ears, but it is important that we, uh, that we speak about it. It has been said that there, are, there were times in the first century when the New Testament is being written, and some unbelieving scholars will say this even about the apostles, that they expected the return of Christ very quickly. And so they were thinking, like those, like those initial 11 did, you know, that when Jesus ascended, they were standing there with their mouths open, you know, expecting him to come right back down. There are some New Testament scholars, most of them unbelieving scholars, that will say something like, you know, the apostles uh, expected Christ to return very quickly. Now, it's obvious from 2 Thessalonians 2 that that perhaps is what the Thessalonians believed. But it is also obvious that that is not what Paul believed. Paul is not teaching here a very close return of Christ. Actually, what what he's saying is there are several things that have to intervene first. And this is the thing I think that people miss in reading this. So in the opening couple of verses, it's interesting, it's, it seems that there have been some that have said, so no, notice what he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, nor, nor troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. It's not. That's the implication of that. It's not at hand. And although you may receive a letter from somebody claiming to be me, Paul says, telling you that it is at hand, it's not at hand. There are things prophetically that must happen first, Paul says. Now this is going to come as a shock to some people. Some folks were thinking that the early church, New Testament church, when I think of the early church, I think of Adam and his family, but the early church being the New Testament church, that... Um, that they thought that Jesus was coming back at any time. Actually, that led to some errors in Thessalonica. Some practical errors that we'll get to, Lord willing, next week when we see that people have stopped working. They're busybodies. You know, Jesus is coming back next week. Why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Right? Okay. And by the way, you know, just as, a, as an aside... Um, dispensationalism emerged in sometime around the 1860s, you know, midway between 1860 and 1870. It became the dominant eschatology near the end of the 19th century, and it dominated eschatology, and in many places still does dominate eschatology. And when we say, you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship, that's dispensationalism in a nutshell. That's something that dispensationalists often say. And beloved, may I say it this way? 150 years of not polishing the brass on a sinking ship. And guess what? The the ship is sinking. And there's no lifeline. Right? World flight, retreatism. Jesus is coming back next week. So we don't deal with culture. We don't talk to our neighbors. And we don't deal with the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. Except in getting them saved. And, And the Bible doesn't speak to the world around us. You know what that is, right? Look around you, that's what you get. When the church retreats out of the public square, something else will fill it up. Okay? All right, so let's move on then. 
The Thessalonians thought that Jesus was coming back right away. Paul will say, let no man deceive you by any means. Notice he says there in verse 3, by any means. Not by spirit, not by word, not by letter from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. Right? That's what he said back in verse 2. For that day shall not come, except there be. Now, several things are going to happen first. The first thing is, there's going to be a general apostasy, styled here as the falling away, or a falling away. There's going to be a general apostasy in the church. Second, there's going to be the revelation of the man of sin. We'll talk about him in a moment. He opposes God, this one, by perverting the gospel, causing his followers to look to others instead of Christ, perverting his ordinances and his sacraments, perverting the word, and by seeking out and destroying the people of God. Third, this son of perdition, he exalts himself as God by arrogating to himself divine prerogatives. That is, he claims the power to forgive sins, to add to the word of God, He claims a greater authority than the word of God. He binds men's consciences with rites, practices, and ceremonies not given by God, who is the only Lord of the conscience. He calls himself the vicar of Christ, the supreme pontiff, or the holy father, and he believes that he is exempt from the judgment of God. We're talking about the papacy. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is prophesying about the papacy. Okay. Now you'll hear all kinds of other things. That Antichrist is going to be some Syrian guy that rises up at the end of days. No, not the end of days, but in the middle of the days. And he'll rise up and he will continue until, my opinion, the end of days. Some other faithful men will say, no, he's going to be destroyed before the end of days. That's a faithful view, but it's not my view. I think he's going to be with us till the end. Okay, so <clears throat> notice what he does. First of all, he leads the way in an apostasy, an apostasy from the gospel, an apostasy from the purity and power and authority of the word of God. He will mingle synergistic pagan rites with Christianity. And all of that is, uh, he will lead the visible church astray in that, or much of the visible church. Now let me say this, that even in the, In the strongest era of the Roman pontiff during what we would call the Middle Ages, there was a remnant of God's people present in several places in the world. Uh, In the valleys of the Valdois, right? We would call them the Waldenses today. In certain pockets and places in the British Isles, the disciples of Columba of Iona, And in other places around Europe, very small pockets that preserved the true religion. You read the 14th century confession of the Waldenses, it reads like a Reformation uh, confession. Okay, So let's remember that although the majority report, the great apostasy of the visible church in that day, it it, it looked like it had all gone astray, it had not. In every age, God has his remnant, even if it's eight in the days of Noah. God will have his church upon earth to worship him. The church is indestructible because she has preserved 
by Christ Jesus. So, uh, we, we go on. Uh, let's, let's look at a couple of other things here. So, that day shall not come except the falling away first. That man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. He opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship. Let's remember that at the height of the Roman pontiff's power in the Middle Ages, that he was called the Lord God of the earth. He stood in the place of Christ. Uh, the papacy amassed to it not only ecclesiastical authority, but civil authority, such that kings and princes should answer to the papacy. Right? We've all heard of uh, King Henry and his going to Canossa, right? Where he stood three days in the snow because he got sideways. He, got it, he, he was put at odds with the Pope. And the Pope said, all right then, all of my people throughout the world, you don't have to obey your monarch anymore. And, of course, Henry's kingdom, uh, German kingdom, it began to descend into anarchy, right? And so Henry said, well, I, I guess I need to go make good with the Pope. And the Pope was in his winter house in Canossa, Italy, and he made him stand there three days in the snow before he would even see him. And then when he came in, thoroughly beaten and half frozen, he bowed before the Pope and kissed his ring. The Pope was always about gathering to himself civil authority. This is why, if you'll remember, it was the Pope that put the crown on the head of Charlemagne. Hmm. The Pope was happy to do that, wasn't he? Why was he happy to do that? Because the symbology of it he couldn't resist. I'm the one that crowns you. I'm the one that controls you. Right? So he, he opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God. Called God there would mean those gods of the earth. Right? Or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself or, or showing out himself as God. And how does he do that? First of all, note that he is in the temple of God. That is, he appears in the midst of Christendom or the visible church. But notice also beyond that, that he will present himself to the world as ruling over everything, as the vicar of Christ. And by the, by the term vicar of Christ, which is a self-styled title of the Roman pontiff, that means he stands in the place of Christ, which is exactly representative of the Greek Antichrist, because anti does not mean opposed to, it means in the place of. And then Paul will remind the Thessalonians, remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. Why do you think Jesus is coming back next Tuesday? When, when I was with you, I told you that all these other things had to happen first. Don't be deceived, Paul is saying. Right? What was the word of Christ to his disciples? Occupy until I come. Be busy about your callings. And so on. Now verse 6. Again another difficult portion. But we're just going to plow right through it. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth. That he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Very, very difficult in, in the reading of it. Very simple in the explanation of it. There was something that was standing in the way 
of this son of perdition to be made manifest in Paul's day. Something standing in the way. What was it? It was indeed the government of Rome. It was the Pax Romana. It was the Senate of Rome and the emperor that actually kept an iron fist over the entirety of the world, the known world at that time. Okay, so it was impossible for someone to compete with that authority for the hearts and minds and souls of those within that Roman Empire. But in the beginning of the 5th century, what happens? Here come the Visigoths, right? Here come the hordes from the north of Europe. And what do they do? They sack Rome and they take it. And so suddenly that iron fist of Rome is no longer over the known world and there is a vacuum of power created. And guess who's ready, poised to flow into that vacuum of power? The Roman Pope. He's in the same city. He's already been exalted or exalted himself within the church to be the, one of the leading bishops, if not the bishop. Other churches are acceding that sinfully to him by looking to him and asking him for advice, counsel, and authority. She's already poised in that position. And so when Rome falls, just like when the vacuum appears, something rushes into it. And so it only takes about 250 years from the fall of Rome or even less for the papacy to be established, at least in its inception, over that known world. Okay, So he who letteth will let, that is he who prevents, he who withholds, will withhold until he be taken out of the way. What does it mean? Until the Roman government, the Pax Romana, the Senate and Emperor of Rome, until they are taken out of the way, Rome cannot, Rome, the, uh, the, the church, the papacy cannot rise up to that level of authority. But after that, they do. And so then that becomes the force to be reckoned with. And by the 7th century, the late 600s, we have the papacy being established not only as the ecclesiastical center of the world, but the political center of the world as well. Okay, so then that wicked one shall be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Verse 8 is why I believe that the Roman pontiff or the Antichrist will be with us until the end of days. It's the brightness of his coming that finally destroys him. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, oh, sorry, even him, verse 9, whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. Well, that the, that the papacy holds in its hand lying wonders no one in this room should doubt. Day after day after day, every day, somewhere in the world, a minister of that anti-Christian communion raises up a piece of bread and says, this is Christ. He has turned a piece of bread into Christ. Beloved, that's a lying wonder. In order to become a saint, I don't know if you know this, in the Roman Catholic Church, Not only do you have to do miracles while you're alive, but after you're dead, you have to do miracles that are attested to by others. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's a part of the beatification process. Lying wonders. 
uh, it would take too long for me to recount the instances in which crying statues and bleeding crosses were, uh, were finally exposed to be mechanical devices that were built during the Middle Ages to attract the faithful or the unfaithful. Lying wonders. Uh, he arrogates to himself the prerogatives of God. What does he say? He has the ability to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. He has the ability to create a holy day. Uh, you may not know this, but when a bishop is ordained in the Roman Catholic Church, he's not ordained. He is created bishop. So that once you are created bishop, you cannot be uncreated as a bishop. And so if those guys go apostate and leave the church, they take their bishopric with them. It's impossible to undo what has been done. He's been created bishop. These are lying wonders, false miracles. Uh, the arrogating of divine authority to oneself. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders... And this is why he is the beast in the book of Revelation that looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. It's the dragon that animates him, but he looks like a lamb. He says, no, who, me? Me? I'm the vicar of Christ. So he looks like a lamb. He speaks like a dragon. And beloved, there are billions of earthlings, people in this world, that are deluded and under his spell. Billions. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. There is enough of the truth in the Roman Catholic Church, not that she should be what we would say a true church of Christ, but that there is enough there that people, because they love unrighteousness instead, they can be deceived into not believing. Right? They have a disease. We call it the deceivableness of unrighteousness. Folks that have, have hearts that are not purified by faith, beloved, they are deceivable. Extremely deceivable. They believe it when that wafer is raised up and it, quote, becomes the body of Christ. And there he is to be worshipped, body, soul, blood, and divinity. They believe that. Why? Because they love unrighteousness and they're deceived. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And the pleasure in unrighteousness there, as we apply that to the Roman Catholic Church, let's remember that there's only one righteousness in the world. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Anything else is unrighteousness. And so if you have all of those works and lying wonders and penances and all those made up things that make you holy, those are all unrighteous. And they take pleasure in them. It paints a bleak and yet very true picture, does it not? 
Once we have the right interpretation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, suddenly it's not some Syrian that rises up in, you know, in the last seven years of, of humanity. Now we see him right next to us in our age. And he continues on. We will hear in another place in the book of Revelation, how is this one overcome? How is one with such power, with such uh, dark evil force standing behind him how is he overcome it says that christ will slay him with the sword that comes out of his mouth a heavy and hearty and well-placed parry of the word of god is the only thing that will overcome that horrid system and that is why one of the first things that the papacy took aim at was that very word claimed authority over it the authority to authorize it and give it its power all right and then the last thing that i want to say about this is in verse 11 and beloved this is one of those things it's under the category that pastor todd calls let's worship the god that is right rather than the god that we want to make up because there are a lot of folks that are regular in churches today that would have a difficult time receiving what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.11. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. We have to ask ourselves the question, do we believe in the God of Scripture who sends delusion to some? We must. This is the God we worship. This is his self-revelation to us. And should that not make us then to bless him for his mercy in that there are others that he does not send delusion to but light his spirit instead. Yeah. So now we go to verse 13 where Paul completely changes gears. No longer are we talking about the Roman Catholic Church and those that are deluded under that horrid system. Notice verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, that is, not from the beginning of your lives, not from the beginning of the gospel, not from the beginning of anything except the beginning of the world. From the beginning, that is, from the beginning that was no beginning, from eternity past. God hath from the beginning, what? Chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Not lying wonders. Not lying doctrines. Not, um, I don't know, some of you will perhaps remember this from our study of baptism a few years back. You know, uh, we're coming up on the, on the time when in every Roman Catholic church, they will do something that they do every year doing what they call Holy Week. They will drain the baptismal font. Most of you probably don't realize this, but it has a separate drainage pipe. It cannot go down the sewer. It has to go on the ground. And so there'll be a separate drainage pipe that empties that baptismal font out in the dirt. And then they'll fill it back up with water, regular tap water, and then the priest will do several things to it. And one of the things that he will do is he will blow on the water. 
as if he were or had the authority to blow the Holy Spirit and to infuse it with spiritual power such that everyone upon whom it comes is forgiven of original sin. They will put oil in it. They will put salt. The priest himself will spit in it. They will put a particular perfume that they call chrism in it, in the shape of a cross. They will make water no longer water, and they will destroy the sign. And this is why in the RPCGA we do not receive Roman Catholic baptism as true. We stand with the 1843 Presbyterian Church, who, with a vote of 113 or 114 to 2, Presbyters in that National Assembly voted no longer to receive Roman Catholic baptism uh, as valid baptism. Okay? But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Not some false spirit that is blown into a vat of water, but the true Spirit and the truth itself. Remember, the word and spirit go together. And so in time then, he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because then we are not a part of that system, because we've been chosen to salvation, therefore let us stand fast and hold the traditions which have been taught either by word or our epistle. Not the false and lying traditions of Rome, which they claim go back to the fathers but do not. And you know who one of the greatest theologians was that took them on on that Calvin because Calvin was steeped in the fathers and he took all of those teachings back to the fathers that that the that Bellarmine and others had claimed that were from the fathers that were endemic to the Roman church and he said no these things don't appear there they're they're really not there so uh, the tradition is apostolic tradition whether by word or our epistle Now notice, we don't have apostles running loose on the landscape anymore, so we have the epistles left instead, the writings. That's what we have. And if it's not there, we disbelieve it. All right, so now we have a benediction. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And the only thing that I will do in closing is remember that here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul will speak again of the Roman Catholic Church and others like it. In 1 Timothy 4, he'll say that there are those running loose on the landscape. And you know what they're telling you? They're telling you to, well, they're forbidding to marry. And they're saying, you don't eat these foods. Once again, these, uh, this pertains to the Roman Catholic Church and others. And what's important about this is that Paul will say in verse 6 to Timothy, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister. Of Jesus Christ nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. In other words, there are times when a good minister, in order to maintain that title, will have to cut it straight like we've cut it today. Well, we're not saying that we hate Roman Catholics. Not at all. We love them very much. And we pray, as they have been counseled to do by John in the Revelation, that they would come out from that system. That they be not partaker of her sins. Uh, I'll close with this. 
I remember reading an essay once in and around the time that J.I. Packer and Charles Colson and other men joined with uh, others and, and put this document together called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Back in the uh, late 70s, I suppose it was. I remember reading an essay that was written in that day by, uh, by the then Pastor John MacArthur, now Dr. MacArthur. And I remember one of the things that he said, and it stuck with me, and I, I, I pray it will stick with you too. In that one day when those men signed that document, they changed the mission of the church. Up until that time, among evangelical and reformed churches, we had always considered the Roman Catholic Church a part of our missionary endeavor. Suddenly, we're joined hand in hand with them in common cause. And so the question that, back in those days, it was still a faithful organization, the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, asked was, are they still a mission field for us? Beloved, I'm here to tell you, they are still a mission field for us today. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.